0: Welcome to HB Media Minute, a podcast from Haynes & Boone that focuses on legal trends impacting the media and entertainment industry, intellectual property, and First Amendment law. I'm Nathan Koppel, the Director of Media Relations for Haynes Boone. I'm joined today by Haynes Boone associate Michael Lambert, who is based in our Austin office and is a member of the firm's Intellectual Property Practice Group. Michael focuses on media, entertainment, IP, and First Amendment litigation. Today we're going to talk about a hot topic, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is the legal framework that protects tech companies like Google, Twitter, and Facebook from liability for third-party content such as reader posts, YouTube videos, and Instagram posts. It's a critical legal foundation for the expanding social media sphere, but not surprisingly the law has plenty of supporters and detractors including some critics who say that service providers need to bear more responsibility to vet and police the content they host. Section 230 is such an interesting area of law, in fact, that Michael and I are going to have a couple of follow-up discussions that will delve deeper into Section 230 and related topics. Um, Before we get started today, our disclaimer, this podcast is for informational purposes only. It's not intended to be legal advice and does not establish an attorney-client relationship topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Well, Michael, welcome aboard.
1: Thank you, Nathan. Great to be here.
0: So um, we're going to get into section 230, uh, but I'm kind of curious before we start looking into that law, what was the regulatory regime for the internet before the Communications Decency Act came online?
1: Yeah. So in the early 1990s, um, when the internet was just evolving, you know, courts were trying to determine how to regulate the internet and whether online services should be held liable uh, for the content of others. Um, So you sort of had a mixed regime in the courts, whereas some courts were holding that online services were not liable for user content because, you know, sort of like a telephone company, they were a mere distributor of content. That's how the courts saw them. And they lacked knowledge of the underlying content. But on the other hand, other courts held that um, when online services actually took steps to remove content and to filter content, that in those cases, the online services were liable for the user content because in that case, they were acting more like a publisher. And as you can imagine, these contrary conclusions in the courts um, really left the online services with a choice um, between either not screening content at all to avoid legal liability, but in turn, you had to keep some objectionable objectable content on the platform, or you could screen the content to make it family friendly, but at the cost of potential liability. And there was really a third option, which was obviously the least desirable one, which was to just get out of the third party content game altogether because of these risks.
0: So Michael, in light of the patchwork that you described, was was that sort of the was that the impetus behind section two hundred thirty?
1: Yes, that was a big part of it. I mean, online services didn't really have a guide to go by into how they should regulate content and if and whether they should be held liable. But you got to remember, around this time, you know, it's the mid nineteen nineties. Um, the internet was so new there was really just no legislation um, regulating the the internet. So in nineteen ninety five, uh, Congress passed the Communications Decency Act as part of a larger law called the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which was signed by President Bill Clinton at the time. And it was really designed to make sending obscene material to minors a crime. That was really the focus of the Communications Decency Act. But one part of the Communications Decency Act that has survived to this day and has really made a big impact was what they called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And it was written by Senator Chris Cox, and Ron, Ron Wyden, and Ron Wyden is still a sitting senator from Oregon, who's an advocate for these technology uh, type of legislations. In Section 230, so it was intended to really align the incentives with policy so that online services did not have to make this choice. They didn't have to choose between either screening content or facing liability. And interesting to note that the actual purpose that's stated in section 230 is to promote the continued development of the internet and to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services.
0: I need to kind of go back in my memory, Michael, and try to remember in the 1990s what the internet looked looked like, but I'm sure it was growing pretty robust. Uh,
1: Yeah, it was quite pedestrian from what we're seeing now.
0: Yeah, yeah. So what are the key provisions of of 230?
1: So Section 230 has two main provisions. The first provision is an immunity provision that says that websites and online services are not legally liable for third-party content, except for a few exceptions, which we'll touch on. The second provision is a safe harbor provision that protects good faith decisions to block or remove content that an online service may deem objectionable.
0: So, so Michael, if I'm understanding it correctly, this provides some immunity for, for providers. Is, is that right? And, and I'm curious what the scope of that immunity is, Section 230, that is.
1: Right. So this first provision, and this is the one that really gets the most attention. Uh, it gives online services protection from lawsuits based on third-party content. But to, and to receive this protection of Section 230 and not be liable, um, you must meet uh, two main criteria. The first one is that you must be what is called um, a provider or user of an internet interactive computer service. And that has really been interpreted really broadly to include virtually every service available on the internet. So this includes internet service providers, search engines, social media platforms, basically any website that hosts third-party content. And when we say third-party content, we're thinking of, of text, it could be audio, and it could be videos. So the second requirement to have Section 230 protection is that you must be facing a legal claim that's based on content from a third party. So Section 230 only applies when you, the online service, is being treated as the speaker, even though the claim is based on the allegedly unlawful content of someone else. So, for example, this would this would occur um, if Yelp, for example, is sued for defamation based on a user comment.
0: I mean, it just it seems to me that you really couldn't have an Internet if you didn't have something like Section 230. I mean, how could YouTube or... Facebook or anyone, if they faced unlimited liability for for strictly third party content, um, just it seems like that the internet would have been stopped dead in its tracks.
1: Right, and and as I said earlier about the purpose that was written into the law, that was what the legislators really were going for. They wanted to encourage startups and new companies um, to build and to be able to, and to invest in these internet platforms.
0: So if you're a oh, and again, I'm make sure I get the key terms right. If you're if you're a provider and it's strictly third party content, uh, it is does that then mean you have blanket protection from liability if someone is is harmed by the content or claims harm?
1: No, and this is often a misconception. Um, although the section two thirty protections are really strong and they really are very robust. There are some exceptions. So the protection specifically does not apply to intellectual property claims, such as copyright and trademark infringement. It doesn't apply to federal criminal prosecutions, claims under the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And claims for sex trafficking. Now, this last one, the claims for sex trafficking exception, was added in two thousand eighteen uh, through a bill called FOSTA, which is called which is which is known as the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. Now, we'll discuss this one on the next podcast. But those are a few of the exceptions um, from Section two hundred and thirty protection. And interestingly, there's still an open debate on whether um, claims for right of publicity, for example, are considered intellectual property claims. I mean, the Third Circuit recently, a couple of weeks ago, actually held that yes, right of publicity claims are intellectual property claims, and thus there is no immunity for online services. But historically, the Ninth Circuit has said no, that they are not intellectual property claims. So that just goes to show that this. This jurisprudence in this area of law is still being hashed out, and there are still a number of open questions. The last thing I want to note is that immunity is also lost if the online service induces or contributes to the development of illegal content. So if it it endorses the defamatory content or edits it in some way that increases the defamatory sting of the statement, they could be held liable.
0: So... So, Michael, let's turn to, I guess, what's called or maybe known as the screening provisions of Section 230. Can you explain what what those entail?
1: Right. So this is the second main provision of Section 230, um, and it's intended to encourage online services to review content and filter it out. Um, content that it doesn't want on its platforms. And this this is to encourage online services um, to be able to do this screening without fear of liability in doing so. And the provision, it protects online services from liability for what's called good faith decisions to block or remove content that may be deemed objectionable. Um, and again, it encourages online services to do this. But it's really interesting because, you know, you often hear people complain that social media companies are censoring them um, by blocking them, perhaps, or, or removing some of their content. But it's but this part of Section 230, the second provision here, it expressly gives social media platforms permission to do that. And you also should know that online services themselves, they have their own independent First Amendment rights as publishers to make editorial editorial decisions, and decide what is or isn't on their service. And this is completely separate from their protections of 230.
0: So if you're Twitter and you decide to, to block someone's content that you think is objectionable, by virtue of doing that, you don't automatically waive your 230 protections by exercising that sort of screening
1: function? Right, exactly. This second provision actually expressly allows the social media companies to do that
0: and 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 i would think most most of the web providers exercise that that screening sort of responsibility to some extent or maybe to a large extent
1: no they do they do and that again kind of goes back to the purpose of section 230 and we want these online services to screen content, because we don't want a lot of illegal or otherwise objectionable content out there. And we want to encourage the screening. And we don't want the platforms to think, well, if I do, um, you know, screen something or maybe edit, make an editorial decision, that um, they will be liable, because if they are liable, they're less likely to actually make those decisions and changes.
0: Okay. That's really helpful. So uh, fascinating law that's been, again, I think so critical to the development of the internet. Um, So if you're Twitter, you're YouTube, uh, Google, does 230 protect you for objectionable content in Europe or South America? Does it extend beyond our borders and, and do other countries have analogous provisions?
1: Yeah. So section 230 is really a unique creature of American law. You know, while many countries have laws that do determine whether online services are liable for third-party content, um, they're different than Section 230. And, you know, Section 230 reflects um, the United States' commitment to free speech, which, as we know, is not as robust in other countries. You know, some countries, such as Australia and Japan, they have what's called an actual knowledge approach. And this means that online services are accountable for content that they are aware of or have actual knowledge of. You know, while countries in the UK, uh, New Zealand and South Africa, they have notice and a takedown approach. So users can send requests to these online services in those countries, asking them to remove third party content that they think is harmful. And the services, they must follow certain procedures after receiving these notices and remove the content within a certain amount of time. And then third, the EU has a mere conduit approach, which means that online services are not liable for third-party content if it serves as a mere conduit to transmitting or temporary storing third-party content and this encourages services in a way to not moderate content which as as we've seen is much different than here in the united states
0: and it's fascinating it must be hard for these companies to to um you know make sure that they're complying with all these different regimes in different countries i would think and i'm sure they have to have a different infrastructure you know depending on where the content is for each country. Well, let me ask you, um, since you we've talked about that we're gonna have a couple more episodes coming up, I, I'd wonder if you could take a minute maybe just preview the topics we're gonna discuss in part two and I think part three of uh, our Section 230 series.
1: So in the next podcast, we're going to explore how a federal law called FOSTA has created an exception to Section 230 protection for sex trafficking claims. And that stands for the Allow States and Victims to Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and then in the last last podcast we're going to we're going to discuss reforms in section 230 which includes how federal and state legislators are looking to change section 230 and as well as how courts have been interpreting section 230 and perhaps also um asking state legislatures and federal legislatures to make changes to section 230
0: that's great michael thank you uh, so much for that preview and the way things are evolving with section 230 we may have Parts four, parts five, and and who knows how many more before the end end of the year. Um, Before we sign off, I just want to invite listeners to visit the firm's website at haynesboon.com where you will find the firm's Media and Entertainment Litigation Practice page, which contains links to our Media, Entertainment and First Amendment newsletter, and to all of our HB Media Minute podcasts, which are also available wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, as a reminder, Please stay tuned for my follow-up discussion with Michael about Section 230. Thanks for listening and take care.